Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, welcome everyone to the September already 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Special thank you once again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO for making it possible for us to be here together today. I'm Dr. Remley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce, and we will be reviewing a paper called The Impact of Pre-Hospital Pain Management on Emergency Department Management of Injured Children, which has been published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. And as always, this discussion is paired with a column in EMS World called Journal Watch, written by our very own Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce. So I encourage all of you to go check out this edition as well as past editions on the EMS World website under the category of education and training. Uh, thank you all who are here with us live today. As we begin, let me remind you that you can use the Q&A feature or the chat feature on your screen to ask questions or add in comments and we'll bring those into the discussion with us as we go. Should be a good one today. And um, with that, I think all of our logistics are in order. Let's go ahead and talk about the paper at hand. Uh, so the objective of today's paper was to look at the impact of pre-hospital pain interventions on things that happen in the emergency department. And those things specifically being emergency department pain scores, the timing and dosing of emergency department analgesia, and um, whether or not there was any reduction in pain. So first things first, why does this topic matter? And Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Talk a little bit about what do we already know about analgesia in the pre-hospital setting, particularly around analgesia for children? Uh, good morning. Thanks, Emily. Uh, what we do know is that there have been other studies that have looked at similar criteria and similar patient populations, so those between about one month and 17 years of age. And we know that we're not treating pain the way we should be. Uh, we know that uh, we're underdosing pain management if we're giving pain management or analgesia at all for our pediatric patients. Um, that's been well documented in the literature. It's been well supported, I think, as EMS providers. We probably all know that as well. Um, sometimes our children patients scare us or concern us. Us, especially when we're giving an opioid medication. Uh, wouldn't be the first time that I've heard an EMS provider say they were hesitant to give a medication. It involved some math. Um, and usually that's a hindrance. Anytime we have barriers to success, we know that that's going to reduce the actual rate of application. So barriers to success in delivering pain medication for children include doing the math, figuring out what your dosing structure is, um, and then giving it to the patient. So I think all those things apply here. Um, when we start looking at the study, I think we'll see if we find results that are similar to the results this study found and what we've seen historically. That's great. And, and it is important background. Historically, EMS has not given a ton of analgesia, particularly when we're talking about pharmacologic analgesia in adults or in children. And with children, there's definitely that special set of barriers that you mentioned. 
I think the topic of this study is really interesting because it's looking at that continuum of care. How does what we do in the pre-hospital setting potentially affect what's going to happen at the emergency department? And it takes on that, that myth or that notion of, well, I'm just five minutes away from the emergency department, so should I delay transport to administer analgesia here, or do we go ahead and just go to the emergency department? And I always make the joke of, well, it's not like the fentanyl gods magically descend upon you at the ED doors. We might actually be prolonging pain, not to mention the pain that happens during a bumpy transport. So this is a really important topic, and it was conducted within a well-established research network. Uh, so some of you may have already heard of PCARN, but for those who haven't, Tony, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what is PCARN, which is where this study took place. Yeah, so PCARN, that stands for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, right? And this is really interesting. This is the first federally funded multi-institutional network uh, for research in pediatric emergency medicine in the United States. So this is um, this is this is kind of a big deal. And when they use uh, there's PCARN has done a whole host of uh, very meaningful research, but the goal of the network is it's to conduct uh, rigorous multi-institutional research um, into the prevention and management of acute illness and injuries in children and youth across the continuum of emergency medicine healthcare in the United States. So um, the really, really cool um, uh, initiative. And uh, they again, they've done a lot of good work, as we'll see today. Absolutely. And PCARN is broken into several different nodes. And so this study in particular took place within 11 PCARN emergency departments. And so this is probably a good time for us to go ahead and transition into some of the methods so that we leave lots of time for results. So, Tony, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and take the lead on this. But let's talk about when and where the study took place specifically within PCARN. Yeah, so this was this took place from July uh, 2019 to April 2020, and this was a planned secondary analysis of a prospective multicenter cohort study. So that's a mouthful, right? And for uh, some of our our newer researchers um, who are listening to us and watching us today, um, essentially what this says is this was a this was a study that they took. Pro this was a prospective study, um, but this wasn't their initial analysis. What we're going to review today, this was something that they had planned, but this was gonna this was gonna be after the original analysis um, that they performed on this study population. Um, the children were el eligible for inclusion if they were one month old to 17 years old, and they had to have an injury-related chief complaint, um, and they had to be direct uh, um, transported directly to one of the participating sites by EMS. And they had some interesting exclusion criteria. All of these, I think, were wise choices. Uh, traumatic cardiac arrest, um, anyone with known uh, hypersensitivity to opioids, and uh, and patients who were pregnant were all excluded from this from this study. So um, as we move on, uh, they had some interesting things that they um, one of the. And as you go through and you you build a career in research, you'll understand how important your research coordinators are. Um, and the research coordinators played a really big role in this study. Um, what they did was they enrolled patients and they were available to enroll patients 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so that is uh, that's not a small task. And they screened for eligibility using the electronic uh, patient tracking board that was in the emergency department. Um, pre-arrival notifications or 
communications directly with ED nurses or clinicians. Um, what they did was they wanted to look at patients who had opioids, uh, any, time, any type of pre-hospital analgesia administered, um, including opioids or non-pharmacological pain management. These non-pharmacological me measures, they included things like splinting, cold packs, um, or simple distraction uh, for a child. And they were self-reported by the EMS clinician. So essentially the research coordinators were looking at for ambulances to come in who cared for patients who may have been injured. Um, and they asked the EMS provider, did, did you provide any pain management for this patient? Um, if the EMS provider was unavailable to answer these questions, they did go back to the reports uh, to see if pain management was delivered. But one thing that's important, and this will be important as we go through our results, is they did not specifically collect which opioids were or what type of non-pharmacological pain management was administered. Um, they It was a yes, no, and they didn't. we don't have specifics into um, which works better and the like. Um, or at least the research coordinators didn't collect that information. So they, and again, research coordinators are worth their weight in gold. Um, so they abstracted and entered data into uh, a medical research database. And they allowed for a week so they can capture all of the hospital data. And then they linked data from the EMS and the, and the emergency department based on patient name, date of birth, uh, chief complaint, the encounter date, and the encounter time. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting about this study, and um, this is not something that you see often, uh, is they actually had a, um, a data quality kind of session with the investigators and the research coordinators um, before the data were analyzed to ensure accuracy. So the, the research coordinators would be able to clarify questions regarding the, the data abstraction and um, and just kind of get a, make sure the investigators had a full understanding of the data that they were about to dive into. So that is um, that all of that. I can't emphasize enough how much work goes into all of that. Um, and it certainly paid dividends for this study. Absolutely. And it's unusual to have this kind of prospective data collection. So that's a big strength of this study that we should highlight is that by having the research coordinators and enrolling patients as they came in, this was a prospective study where they were actually capturing that data live and then entering into a tool called REDCap, which is a data collection tool. And one of the other things that this study that sets the study apart is that they actually obtained consent from the parents. So typically we're using retrospective EMS records and trying to pair those up with hospital records. But in this case, this was prospective research where consent was actually obtained. I think one of the other very interesting parts of the methods is they actually broke down what the non-pharmacological pain management interventions were. Um, as a primary EMT educator, where the EMTs are not giving an analgesia. They're giving some sort of other method. I really appreciated that they took, a, and they will get to this when we get to the discussion because they broke it all down. They looked at whether splinting was applied, whether there was cold therapy applied, and even distraction. So giving the child something, a toy to play with or a video to watch or something like that. So I really appreciated that the authors took the time to say, we recognize not everybody that's bringing in a pediatric patient with pain can give an analgesia, but we want to see, did they do something to try and prevent the patient from experiencing that pain. Yeah, all all great points. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of really um, 
important interventions or methods that they took in the study to to make the the results kind of really clear and understandable and um really really precise so I, I think as we go through we'll we'll talk about some more of these things um so they grouped their pain scores uh they grouped their patients excuse me by their pain severity scores uh and they a priori so before the study was done they had three basically pain groups that folks went into so either mild which was a pain score of zero to three moderate which was a pain score of four to six and then severe uh was seven to ten and then they wanted to again compare um, analgesic medication administration in the emergency department. Uh, they converted all just for ease of uh, analysis. All analgesic medication administrations were converted to morphine equivalents, and they had uh, two outcomes that they that they evaluated. Their primary outcome. So the first the first question that they wanted to answer was they wanted to compare the difference in pre-hospital and ED pain scores between patients who received opioid analgesia or non-pharmacologic pain management and those who did not. So anyone who had some kind of pain management and anyone who didn't. For their secondary analysis, which was interesting, uh, they included the time of first administration for the ED opioid analysis, the total morphine equivalent administered in the ED, and they compared that between groups uh, and they stratified it by those who received only non-pharmacologic EMS interventions and those who received some kind of uh, either one or both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic uh, uh, interventions in the pre-hospital setting. So a lot of different ways to slice and dice the data that we'll be able to go through in the results section. As we move through, their analysis was um, was definitely appropriate for the data that they had. Um, they they ran through and they they presented their descriptive statistics, um, and they ran a logistic regression model uh, to identify the patients and the provider characteristics that were significantly associated with ED opioids, and some of the predictors they included in this model were the, the EMS opioids, non pharmacologic. MS interventions. They looked at pain severity, the presence of long bone fractures. They looked at the certification level of the provider, the provider's experience, uh, the ED pain score, the patient age, patient sex, race, ethnicity, and insurance status. Um, so this was really interesting uh, with, that they were able to build a model and look at all those, uh, those different predictors as well. I agree. And with the pain severity variable that you mentioned, I think it's worth calling out, well, they included children as young as one month. And when we're talking about those pain scales, we typically just think of the zero to 10 or maybe even the faces that a child could point to. But, you know, what about in the younger children who are nonverbal? What kinds of assessment instruments can we use in the pre-hospital setting? And this is probably an area that you know, is going to warrant further investigation. There are observational pain scales, and this is very helpful for especially those younger uh, age groups. So something like the CHIOPS or the FLAC. Um, so it's, it's not enough just to say, well, the child was too young, so I couldn't do a pain score, so I can't do anything to relieve pain. Um, and, and that's something that we should be thinking about too, as early as our initial education programs. That's a great point. I, I couldn't agree more, especially on the education side. Um, as many of these barriers to successful pain medication, we can eliminate. The Wong Baker is another one, the Smiley Scale. Um, anything we can do to indicate to our providers. I think it's interesting. We we sort of keep talking about 
treating pain, whether it's non-pharmacological or non-pharmacological, there's actually, and I think it's 2021, but somebody can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, there's a publication on what the pre-hospital pain management guidance is specific to children, and that it really is a standard of care to be administering some sort of pain management. Um, as we get into the results, we can see if that's the case, but um, it really is published and well-documented that pain management, is, including analgesics, is safe and should be considered the standard of care in children with pain. Absolutely. And, and that's right. I think that's an important document you referenced is the 2021 uh, evidence-based guideline on pre-hospital pain management, which does include a section on children. And in fact, one of the only strong recommendations that was that was able to be made because of a lack of evidence in most cases. But in this case, there is really strong evidence towards having uh, internasal options available for children, specifically in this uh, guidance, it says internasal fentanyl. But we can think about how important that is, not just our assessment toolbox, but our pain treatment toolbox, expanding those to have different options available because you know, an injured child, the last thing that they probably need is a needle, which most of us are afraid of, myself included fine with putting them in people, don't like having them put in me. Um, but, you know, these are things that we should be considering as the evidence is developing. And so I'm very excited to see this study as a baseline. And, you know, I want to check back in a few years, and hopefully we've made a lot of progress in this space. So I'll ask panelists any further questions in the methods, um, or anybody in the audience, any questions in the methods before we go into the meat of this study, which is the results. All right. So let's first talk about who was in this study. How many patients did we have? They started by looking at all patients who were injured in the pre-hospital setting uh, where EMS transported to an emergency department were potentially eligible. Um, so there were 547 patients who were eligible to be included. However, either a patient or patient's caregiver uh, refused to be in the study. They did not sign the consent or uh, eligible was missed. Remember those research assistants were not working 24 hours a day. So it is possible that some were missed. Um, that left 501 who were captured for inclusion. And then due to incomplete pre-hospital documentation, 27 were excluded leaving 474, which is a large sample size in a pediatric study. And this is another strength of having a research network like PCARN where we're able to bring together data from different emergency emergency departments, whereas if we had limited this study to just one emergency department, it might have taken a really long time to get together this many patients for us to study. Uh, so 474 is a great number to look at. And then they further break that out into the different intervention categories, which includes uh, non-pharmacologic intervention only, like Michael mentioned, those are important things like splinting, ice, distraction, positioning, um, opioid analgesia only or a combination of non-pharmacologic and opioid analgesia, and then a group who didn't have any documentation or any reporting of pain interventions. All right, next up is going to be table one. And so this is our traditional table one that includes all of the characteristics of those patients who were included. In this case, the characteristics are split out by the different treatment groups, those four treatment groups that we mentioned before. And the authors did find some important differences here that are worth commenting on. So for those who received either opioid analgesics or the opioid and non-pharmacologic analgesia, um, so those are the first two columns in table one for those who might be following along, um, 
some things that stuck out to me were that these patients were more likely to have severe pain. So to give an example, the mean pain score, and that's that zero to 10 pain score, was an 8.7 in the groups who did receive pharmacologic pain management versus a six in the group that had non-pharmacologic only versus a five in the group that had no intervention. Um, but perhaps even before talking about that, it's worth mentioning that pain was only assessed in 77% of patients. So there is a group with missing pain assessment that's important for us to remember. But going forward, this is just looking at that group that had pain assessment and looking at their pain score for this particular variable. Really interesting, Remley, this sort of mild, moderate, or severe pain. I think to myself, if I had a pain scale of five out of 10, I would still want something for it. Um, I would be pretty vocal about wanting some pain management for it. Uh, I think back to even children, if I've got a child, certainly their pains at eight, nine, or 10, you know, I'm thinking that's a pretty high level and I want to be treating that. But as an EMS provider, even hearing pain management or pain scale of five or, you know, the middle of the scale, um, I, I'm a little bit miffed because I still, I feel like if it was me or if it was a child, well, I don't have children. If I did, I'd feel like I, that they deserve some pain management, something, even if it's not, you know, a narcotic. And, and that's a really key point is, you know, this is not referring to just, you know, pharmacologic management. This is referring to any. And overall, only 55% of patients received any form of pain management pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic. And so that's a huge gap. And then when we're talking about children, one of the potential you know, effects of this is that this could influence their relationship with healthcare. So having that traumatic memory of pain and, and not having that pain be treated can set the stage for future interactions with healthcare. So this is a, and it also affects the healing process. There's a lot of research on why it's important to treat pain. Um, and also that knowing that treating pain doesn't just mean going straight to opioids, that there are a lot of different ways to treat pain. Even, you know, if we want to say, oh, I'm just on a, I'm on a basic life support unit, I can't possibly do anything. No, there are a lot of options there as well. Um, so I think this, that's one of the key things that stuck out to me is that um, probably clinicians are doing a good job at identifying patients who are in severe pain, but there seems to be this hesitancy to, to treat anything that's below severe pain. And then um, we can imagine in the group that did not have a pain assessment recorded, likelihood of getting treated was probably even lower. Um, a couple yeah. of other things. Go ahead, Tony. Oh, uh, I, I just wanted to mention some things that, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about things that are statistically significant and how important it is to have statistical significance. But a lot of that is driven by uh, how big your your sample size is. And we have some smaller sample sizes, even though we were able to bring in a lot of uh patients because they were from 11 different emergency departments but there are some some trends here that if there were the population was a little bit bigger um might gain statistical significance and are worth paying attention to. Um, some things are maybe confirmatory, right? Patient, when we talk about patient age, um, we we're, we we can see kind of a trend that the younger patients aren't getting uh, any pain management, um, and that's something that uh, is kind of confirmatory that we 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 probably all believed was true, but we can see it right in front of our face in the data here. And there's certainly some differences, even though they're not statistically significant patient race here and who's getting uh, analgesic and, and, and non-pharmacologic measures and the like. Um, and then there is a statistically significant difference when we look at uh, uh, 
patient ethnicity. So there's some disparities there that I think are, even though statistical significance may be, not be the driver to, for us to pay attention to, they're worth putting our eye on. Yes, and, and these findings have been replicated in adult studies for a long time. So I think that these inequities are worth paying attention to. And I know that I instantly become very unpopular anytime I bring these up, but they're worth mentioning because I don't think that the vast majority of providers wakes up trying to treat patients differently. And in fact, uh, I get a lot of hate mail or comments on EMS1 articles about, I treat everybody the same. I don't see color. Um, there's some problems with that because implicit bias is a thing and our brain takes shortcuts. It's how it keeps us alive. And so when we see data time and time again, showing the same trend, it tells us that it's probably not an individual person problem that we have, but rather a system problem that needs addressed. And so pain management is a really interesting topic to study because there is a lot of discretion in the protocol. It allows for clinicians to make that judgment on, should I administer an analgesic? And if so, which type of analgesic and what dose should I give? Um, or, you know, nothing bad is going to happen to me per se if I don't do this and it's extra work for me and I'm five minutes from the emergency department and it's 3 a.m. So you can see how all of these things add up. Um, and then in support of that, you can also see one of the lines down here in table one talks about long bone fractures. And so patients with long bone fractures were substantially more likely to get pain management. And that goes back to that kind of value-based judgment. This is an objective injury. We can usually see if there's a fracture or perhaps there's some angulation or an open fracture even. Um, and so these patients were far more likely than patients who didn't have a long bone fracture to receive pain management things for us to also consider in our protocols and in how we are approaching pain management for injuries. I think that's so important to recognize that long bone fracture um, point, Remley. We have this uh, pain management, whether we administer it is up to our perceived level the, of the patient's pain often. Um, I can see a long bone fracture. I can I can assess it. I can palpate it. I can, I don't know that we're auscultating that, but um, abdominal pain, chest pain are things I can't see really the difference between a sign and a symptom there, um, which is telling me that a lot of pain administration or pain management is perception-based rather than what my patient is telling me what I'm hearing from my patient. It takes me back to the classroom and thinking we really need to make sure that our initial education providers and our continuing education providers understand that pain is a metric and whether or not my patient gives me a number that I feel like is substantial pain or not. My patient's telling me they're in pain. I have an obligation to take that seriously and develop a treatment plan accordingly. And pain management is such an interesting intervention in that space because there's not really any other interventions where it's, do you deserve this treatment mm -hmm. or not? Whereas in pain management, it's like, well, you said it was a 10, but you're on your phone, so it can't possibly be a 10. Um, but distraction is a powerful tool. There may be reasons why we're on our phone. And so this value-based, you have to prove it to me in order to be worthy of getting pain management is unique to analgesia. We don't see this for something like a 12 lead, right? You give them a 12 lead, okay, fine. Um, the protocols are, are less discretionary there. So this is an important space for us or in any protocol where there's discretion for us to pay attention and pay attention for health inequities as well. So I, I love that we were able to pull out that point from this table one. All right, I'm checking the comments for chat. All right. And I think with that, we can go ahead and move into the next couple of figures and graphics because there's a lot of great information in the study and it really does build on the evidence base around pre-hospital analgesia. So here in figure two, we have 
pre-hospital opioid administration by the pain severity category. So this goes back to that value judgment on, you know, if it's not severe pain, should I be giving uh, an opioid medication or not? Um, so here we see that even of patients with severe pain, only 36%. So that's about one in three patients with severe pain received any opioid management. Um, compare that to moderate pain, that drops down to 8%, and then mild pain drops down to 1%. So, you know, I don't like my odds of one in three getting pain management if I'm having severe pain. So this is definitely an area where we can focus on. And it's something, you know, we can be patient advocates here, right? They, they, the, the, the severe pain, this is something that, and we'll see, there's an argument, right? What, what, what we do in EMS, when, when, and where does it matter? Right. Um, as we go through this uh, study, we'll see that it, it matters in a whole host of different ways, but certainly, um, in treating pain, that's something we can do and we can do on the spot, uh, particularly for those with severe and moderate pain. I think that, um, this is an eye-opening graph right here. This is an eye-opening graph. And then there's, you know, a lot of myths and things that have also been disproven with research around, you know, this prove it to me concept of you say it's a 10, but it's not really a 10 or everybody is just drug seeking. Um, their heart rate's not elevated. Therefore, they can't possibly be in pain. A lot of these ideas have been disproven. And so using vital signs as an indicator of prove it to me, do you actually have pain is not the best way to go about this. So certainly are there patients who are seeking medications? Absolutely. Is that the vast majority? The data would suggest that's not true. And so this is something for us to check ourselves in our own cynicism and burnout on when we're saying, you know, do we really think that 64% of patients with severe pain were actually in severe pain? Or do we have a treatment gap that we can probably improve? I think this study is so important at breaking down some of these myths, right? Most children are not coming to the emergency department with drug seeking, you know, opportunity or not doing that. Maybe that's the case in some of our adult patient populations, but I know it's not as high as what I hear people telling me why they didn't give pain management. Um, similarly, our kids are not typically lying to us about their signs and symptoms, or we certainly don't assume that to be the case. So I think that really breaks that myth of, well, I, I give pain medication to everyone except those that I'm worried about. I also hear the myth that, you know, uh, addiction is is a problem, and we know that's a problem to narcotics. Um, the evidence in addiction studies do not indicate that people become addicted to narcotics from routine administration in the pre-hospital setting from one transport. It's long-term usage over several weeks to months, usually after they leave the hospital that that addiction develops. So I think, again, as we break down the myths of why we do or do not treat pain, looking at our pediatric patient population is incredibly important to show that there is a disparity here. Absolutely. And just expanding our toolkit. So if we're worried about opioids, there are a lot of non-opioid options available as well. And so revisiting the evidence and revisiting our protocols becomes important. Uh, for example, IV Tylenol, which Offermev is the name brand of that, has lost its patent. And so that medication was historically pretty expensive, but as of about a year and a half ago, it lost a patent. So generics should be coming out and, and the cost of that may change. So we should also consider changing our practices with regards to that. Ketamine is another option that has been used in children at analgesic doses for a long time. Also available IN, which is an important non-IV route. Uh, so I agree. I think that looking at this should be our wake up call to start thinking about the why behind it. Now, this study did not attack the why behind it. Its goal was simply to describe current practice and how this influences treatments in the emergency department. 
And so we could move into table two, which is really the crux of the study. That is the drum roll, please outcome table. And so I'm gonna go ahead and move us over there. And here in table two, we have the columns for the groups of treatment. So opioid, opioid plus non-pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic only, and, and no pain management. And we look at things like their first emergency department pain score. Now, hold our thoughts on this one. The summary is that the initial ED pain score was higher in the groups who received analgesia. So that must mean that the analgesia was no good, right? Wrong. We'll see on the next graph how their pain score started and then how they arrived at the emergency department. Um, next is the change between the, the um, EMS pre-hospital pain score and the emergency department pain score. So here is an important finding. The difference in the EMS to the ED pain score was much larger in, in the form of a reduction for patients who were in those analgesia groups. Uh, so we see that it was an, on average a two-point reduction in pain score between EMS and ED for those who received opioids. Now, in those who received non-pharmacologic only, the difference was 0.8 on that 10-point pain score. And then for those who received no documented interventions, the reduction was a 0.3. Now, typically in research studies, we consider a, a pain reduction of at least two points to be clinically meaningful. So those who received the pharmacologic interventions had a clinically meaningful pain reduction. Uh, and then the, we get into some really important and interesting findings. So emergency department opioid analgesia. We might think, well, if I give them pain medication in the pre-hospital setting, well, they're going to be far less likely to get it in the emergency department setting. But that's the exact opposite of what these authors found. So those patients who received opioids pre-hospitally were far more likely to continue to receive opioids in the emergency department. Uh, so there's this concept known as diagnostic momentum, and EMS has a huge ability to influence the diagnostic momentum by treating pain early. It's far more likely that the patients are going to continue to receive pain management. Um, and then same is true for dosing. So patients who received pre-hospital opioids were more likely to have a higher dose of pain medication in the hospital setting, and especially within the first 60 minutes of care. Uh, so this helps us bust some of those myths on, oh, well, you know, if I just don't give pain management, they'll get it when we get to the ED anyway, or I'm going to somehow, you know, erase the pain pathway or something important. The evidence here suggests that when we treat pain pre-hospitally, the patient is going to be better off and have more likelihood of having their pain treated in the hospital as well. I think that's a key point. Um, and just looking at figure three, it made me, I wrote this down, the, the hospital will treat your pain in quotes. Like this is what we tell patients. Well, we're close enough to the hospital that the hospital will treat your pain. Clearly that's not the case, actually. If we treat your pain in the pre-hospital setting, you're much more likely to continue that dosing once you get to the hospital. So this this myth that, well, we're, the hospital will just take care of that really isn't true. In fact, us delaying pain management similarly delays pain management in the hospital. So I think that's an important fact to consider as we start talking about what are, you know, what's the takeaway from the study, what should we be doing is you actually are a big part of the continuum of care here. By initiating the pain management and treating your pediatric patient's pain, you actually may make them feel better both in the ambulance and in the hospital. Um, I, I go back to a couple other myths that like, well, does it really matter? Do you know, 
does giving steroids for asthma in the pre-hospital setting really impact your patient? Well, yeah, actually it can delay the amount of the, the number of days that you're spending in the hospital. So there is a real term consequence there. We just don't always see it. I'm not going to see it in the first five minutes of care. That doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't do it. In fact, usually that's not a reason not to do it. So um, treating patients pain in the pre-hospital setting has a big impact on their ED care that I think most EMS providers don't realize. Absolutely. And we know from prior work too, this notion of I'm just five minutes from the hospital actually delays the care, not just the five minute transport time, but the average time to provision of an analgesic in those cases was over 30 minutes. So by and large, we're prolonging pain by not administering in the pre-hospital setting and we're increasing the risk of they might not get that pain treatment at all that might go undetected, particularly when, you know, things are very busy in emergency departments. We have long offload times um, and other systems level factors here that could result in a much longer experience of pain. Um, and then here in figure three, I, I really like this graph because it shows box plots for those who received no pre-hospital opioids and those who did receive pre-hospital opioids. So the pain scores for those who did receive pre-hospital opioids, which is this box on the right, the lighter color box, uh, we see that their initial pre-hospital pain scores were substantially higher, which fits with our expectation. But then when we get to the initial emergency department pain severity score, we can see that that, that lighter color box, the ones who received pre-hospital analgesia, shifted down drastically. So while it was still higher than those who didn't receive analgesia, the change in pain was substantial between having the pre-hospital opioid analgesia and not. Now, bring us over to one more graphic. I think this one is the, the Kaplan-Meier that Tony mentioned from the methods. This is looking at time to first emergency department opioids by based on what happened in the pre-hospital setting. And so here we can see that the curve that is on top is the group that received pre-hospital opioids. And what this means is that a larger proportion of these patients received pain management in the emergency department and received it earlier compared to those other groups. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. It's not just that they received it, it's that they received it quicker just because uh, someone gave it to them pre-hospitally. Um, you know, we not only does it matter, we, we can impact care, we can impact care throughout the continuum of care. I think this is um, just a really great graph. Absolutely. This is a great visual to see the impact, you know, in that early course of care where there's the most time to make a big difference. Um, and then I will take us over to table three, which is the results of the multivariable logistic regression models. So this is looking at um, whether or not emergency department opioids were given as the outcome. And so when EMS opioids were given compared to not given, there was a fourfold increase in odds of getting emergency department opioids. And Tony and Michael will tell you that, you know, as an epidemiologist, get really excited if I see an odds ratio of 1.2, but to see an odds ratio of four tells us that this is a really large effect that we should be paying attention to. Uh, and then some of the other factors, oh, no, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to add in, I think sometimes we are a little bit, um, uh, maybe misconceived when we say, well, the hospital doesn't care what I'm doing. The hospital, like, they don't listen to my report. They're not 
do they, they it doesn't matter what I say. This study debunks this completely in pediatric patients. In fact, there's a huge impact on what you say when you're saying uh, we perceived pain, we treated the pain accordingly. The hospital is clearly taking some rationale from that um, when it comes to treating patients' pain. And certainly there's an assessment involved and they're making some realizations themselves and some perceptions themselves, but a fourfold increase that tells me that they're listening to what we're having to say and they're basing their treatment on what our treatment was initially in the pre-hospital setting. Absolutely. And then in addition to the EMS treatment, a couple of the other variables that they highlight for us here are that point around long bone fractures. It doesn't just hold true in the, you know, descriptive analysis here. Long bone fracture was associated with a ninefold increase in odds of ED analgesia. Again, these being those objective injuries that are easier to detect. And with our value judgment of, well, of course a broken bone hurts um, versus, well, they twisted their ankle. That's probably some value judgment on whether or not that's somehow worthy of pain management. Um, and then with uh, increasing pain scores. So they looked at the initial pain score in the EMS setting, as well as in the emergency department setting. And this shouldn't surprise us that increase in pain score was associated with increase in odds of emergency department opioids. Um, but it is something for us to keep in mind when we're modeling and we're studying these things to actually look at that pain assessment. Um, and this again, doesn't include that 23% of patients who didn't have a pain score. So that's something for us to consider too, is conducting a good assessment is where this really all starts. And so if we're able to conduct and document a good assessment, we can advocate for our patients and make it a lot more likely that they'll receive treatment for their pain. All right, and then last table is table four. And this is just looking at the uh, medication doses that were administered. So for those who uh, received uh, non-pharmacologic and uh, pharmacologic intervention here, or what we have is for morphine equivalents, and I don't know that we explained this well, but this is something actually worth looking at because it's a very creative way of looking um, at dosing. When we wanna compare different medications, so let's say that fentanyl and Dilaudid were used, it wouldn't be a fair comparison just to compare the actual dose of those medications. And so something that's commonly performed is to translate these into morphine equivalents. And that lets us compare apples to apples across medication classes, which is what the authors did here. And so um, what they're looking at is whether or not the ED morphine equivalents differed for patients based on their pre-hospital pain management, whether they received um, pharm pharmacologic interventions or not. Um, and overall, we see that those with non-pharmacologic interventions were more likely also to have higher emergency department morphine equivalents, suggesting that any treatment, even if you can't provide a pharmacologic intervention in the EMS setting, is likely to be associated with the emergency department hearing that report and continuing the care and then initiating that pharmacologic treatment. I think that's really important. And I think recognizing, so this table looks just at the percentage of patients treated by our EMTs or those are not giving not giving some sort of narcotic pain management. Um, there's a huge deal here. So if you gave ice, if you splinted, if you distracted the patient, you, the, again, the hospital is seeing that, they're hearing that their treatment is changed based on what we're doing in the pre-hospital setting. So a bit of this scoop and run in our patients in pain is this actually seems to be a bit of a disservice to our patients. I, I want to point out too, because the, they spend a bit of time in the discussion putting this to, to point, 
50, you have about a 50% chance of having your pain treated non-pharmacologically by an EMT, which I appreciate because it was higher than our ALS counterparts in terms of treating their pain. So even in our paramedics who have more tools in their toolbox to treat pain, our EMTs still treated pain more often um, than, than our paramedics. So I thought that was uh, worth noting. As, the, as your friendly neighborhood EMT over here, I also appreciate that you noted that. And I do think that's an important call out table for is restricted to just the BLS clinicians. And I, I applaud the authors for taking this look because often the focus is on urban settings where we're more likely to have an ALS clinician present. But what about the urban rural disparities in, you know, in areas where we don't have access to an ALS clinician? What should we be doing? And this this table gives us a lot of evidence that, hey, what we do at the BLS level is really important. All right, now we've made it through all of the tables and figures and I'm gonna open it up to general discussion. So audience, now's the time to get in your questions. Um, while, we think, while we discuss a few closing thoughts in terms of what does all of this mean? What's, what else do we need to study? Um, and, and what should we do with this information if we're working at EMS agencies? And so I'll go ahead and start and then I'll turn it over to Tony and Michael for their thoughts. For me, the key takeaways here are pain is undertreated, especially in children. Um, and though it wasn't split out specifically in this study, I would wager a lot on that the younger the child, the less likely they are to receive pain management and probably pain assessment as well. So those are some important areas for us to focus on, not only at an initial EMS education setting, but in our continuing education as well and something for us to target specifically with our robust quality management programs. Um, pain is by and large one of the top reasons that emergency medical services is called or is a part of, a, of um, an encounter for the vast majority of encounters. So something that not only applies to children, this likely applies to adults as well, but gives us uh, some good evidence that we should take this opportunity to look at our protocols to not just consider whether or not we gave a pharmacologic intervention, but to think about our toolboxes too. What do we have available? Uh, do we have non-IV routes available, particularly with children, though there's plenty of adults who after an injury, the last thing they need is another needle. Um, and so for us to consider what's in our toolbox and are we aligning ourselves with that 2021 evidence-based guideline? Yeah. And, you know, I'll jump in. I think those are great points. And, you know, one of the, I think the most important things to take from this study is just, it, it just adds to the continued uh, literature that what we do pre-hospitally really does matter. Um, not only can, if we take appropriate measures, can we reduce pain at the patient on, on scene, um, but we can reduce the time to pain management and, and opioids and analgesia in hospital, and we can make sure that that, that care is continued to be provided uh, throughout the continuum of care. Um, there's that I think that is that is a huge take home point from this paper, and it's something that that I, I, we continue to see in in literature that you know as as we get more and more outcomes and linked data that you know EMS does uh, have an important role to play in the continuum of care. We're not just taking patients to uh, the emergency department, um, and this particularly we're talking about children. We're talking about um, uh, making them more comfortable when they've had. 
in empirically a very bad day, right? So I think that um, it's it's really important. Uh, Remy, you talked about this earlier about um, this can dictate how they they interact with with healthcare throughout the rest of their lives. Um, and I think that was really insightful and something that I just wanted to uh, highlight again, because, um, again, this is we can make an, an improvement on scene. We can make improvements throughout the continuum of care and potentially throughout the patient's life. Um, so it's really important. Um, and I really uh, I, I think this was a great study. I, I couldn't agree more, Tony, and I think those are excellent points. This this leads me to start thinking, okay, if, if I'm a you know EMS clinician or I'm a QI person, this would be a really easy report to run out of any one of the charting softwares. You could very easily do a search and filter for younger than 18 years of age and any documented pain scale and then pull all the interventions that were performed. Um, if I was in a QI role at an agency, I, I would pull this report and want to see, are we are we at 19% like the study noted in terms of analgesia for pediatric pain? Are we better than that? And then, uh, uh, you know, maybe we're doing great and that's worthy of celebration. My guess is we're going to find that most agencies are within this same metric, which tells me why? It makes me start asking the question, what are the barriers to administering pediatric medication? We've talked about some of the myths today that have been fairly well debunked, but I'm also thinking, looking at protocols to figure that out, if we've got a weight-based dosing structure, but our medication comes in 100 micrograms per ml in a case of fentanyl, is the difficulty here because we don't have a 1cc syringe where we can actually draw up um, you know, 0.3 milli equivalents or mls of a medication. If that's, that's very simple problem to fix. So I, I would start looking at my protocols to try and figure out why are we missing the mark here? If we've debunked the myths on why we give pediatric pain medication, is there an actual barrier for our safe administration of this medication in terms of what's required of us in our protocols, our math skills? I mean, dosing charts are something we advocate every agency use. So do the math have a chart saying this is the kilograms, this is the mLs of our specific medication that you administer, and then run the QI report after another six months and see if we're making an impact um, with some of those interventions. I think trying to figure out the barriers to success here um, is, a, is a big deal. And I love that thought process, Michael, that is following the model for improvement. And so in improvement science, we talk a lot about uh, looking for drivers, and those are those root causes of what's actually going on. And what's actually going on in one system might not be what's going on in another system. We're very quick to move to education or memos, but often that's uh, not the only cause. And so thinking even further, like you just said, uh, what equipment do I have available? What tools do I have in my toolbox? Uh, what do my protocols actually say? Is anybody being held accountable for these protocols? Those are all really important things that we can go home and do at the local level. And actually, it's an exciting time in EMS because the first time in our history, we have 11 evidence-based measures that we've agreed upon are a national standard. And that is the NEMSQA measures. And of course, we love a good acronym in EMS, but NEMSQA is the National EMS Quality Alliance. And so one of these measures is for patients with a pain score above zero, and you can modify this up as you like, if you wanna start you know, in the severe category, that's fine, but they are looking at this holistically with patients who had any pain reported, was there a pain reduction during the EMS encounter? And I think it's really important how they chose to look at that measure of was there a pain reduction because this puts BLS clinicians back into the mix. It's not asking, you know, did you give an analgesic medication or did you give a narcotic? It's asking, did you do something that relieved that patient's pain?
Uh, so I think that's something for us to take home. Now, I do see an audience comment in here that I think is important. So Chris mentions that there's a trend towards creating separate pathways for chronic pain versus acute pain um, and this encouragement to, to engage in shared decision-making or consult when there is a gray area. And might this be a way that we could improve pain management and get past implicit bias? I'd like to say that, you know, I think these things are great ideas to have that console, especially on chronic pain and what's not working. But in this study, we're talking about acute pain. And in a study that Tony and I both recently worked on in adults with confirmed long bone fractures, we saw that a large proportion of those patients who had severe pain and a confirmed long bone fracture on ED arrival didn't receive pain management. So it's probably not the only thing that we need to do. It's probably a good thing for us to consider, but you know, for us to not put the blinders on and only suspect that we have implicit bias when it comes to chronic pain um, is going to be important because even with objective, and I'm doing that, objective air quotes, uh, injuries, we still see that there is bias in how pain medication is being administered or how pain is being treated. Um, so something for all of us to probably build into our quality management programs and not just to build it in. I encourage all of you to share what's working well. Um, I teach in a lot of quality improvement courses, and I've seen a lot of agencies come up with innovative solutions on how we can better pain management. And so if you are one of those agencies who takes this on as a project, share those findings, whether it be through a research project or a journal publication, you know, in one of the trade journals or, you know, find a way to share that finding with others so that we can replicate those things that are working well. I think that's so important. And to that point, one of the limitations actually noted in the study was that they didn't have any of the agencies during this time period that utilized a non-opioid medication for enrollment. I have a, two thoughts, sort of one pathway is the more tools in our toolbox to treat pain, the better off we are. That goes to Chris's point where if we're treating a patient who's got chronic pain, um, I've got different tools to treat that pain. I think we have different tools to treat stable versus unstable tachycardia and unstable versus unstable bradycardia. Why wouldn't we for acute and chronic pain? Um, um, but my other hurdle is we're not treating the pain. I mean, 19% got some sort of pharmacological intervention. So there's also a barrier here that I need to get over that says, I don't care what pain management you have. We have to get our providers administering it. Um, we have to get them giving the pain management. So um, I don't know how we, you know, we've discussed lots of reasons on how we do that today, but I think adding more tools to the toolbox is only good if we can get you to actually use those tools. 100%. And I, I think you've hit the nail on the head on one of the most important things is examining what's in our toolbox. What do we have available to us? Um, and I now have a very unpopular task of getting us wrapped up as we are approaching the end of the hour, but I will allow for any final comments. And I'll start with you, Tony, before I close us out. Yeah, I just want to, again, say this is a great study. Congratulations to the authors on uh, getting this published. And I'm really interested to see this study replicated in the next three to four years, um, maybe sooner than that. And let's see if um, we can improve uh, and, and, and you know, provide pain more equitably, pain management more equitably and at a higher rate. Absolutely. And Michael? I couldn't agree more. Uh, hats off to the authors. This really is a landmark paper that's starting to look at this. It only supports what's already out there um, and gives all of us a call to action to make sure that we're properly treating our pediatric patients. And I agree with that as well. I, I can't wait to see this study replicated. Not I 
highly suspect that this doesn't just apply to the pediatric population. What we do in the pre-hospital setting likely replicates for adults in terms of pain management and beyond. So I'd like to see also this study replicated in other settings with other um, treatment pathways, because I think that that diagnostic momentum is a real thing and it's really important. Um, so with that, I also want to iterate the kudos to the authors and the congratulations. This was no easy study to conduct, took a lot of resources, a lot of people working together and had some important results that are truly adding to our literature base. Uh, my final takeaway is that assessment really is king. So make sure that we are doing an assessment and a reassessment. I didn't see how many in this study didn't have a second pain score, but that is vital for us to measure something like the NIM score measure for pain reduction. We need at least two pain scores, even on patients who are too young to talk or too young to point at faces. So considering those observational pain scales, flack and chaps. Um, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and do our last logistics on announcements. So uh, for those of you who wish to tune into our educational podcast, this is really exciting. We're going to have a special edition of the Education Research Journal Club podcast coming to you live from the International Scientific Symposium at EMS World Expo in New Orleans. That will be on Friday, September 22nd uh, at noon central. And then we will be back here with the clinical podcast, as always, second Monday of the month, which will be October 9th. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening and look forward to nerding out with you all next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.